Hello, this is Deborah Anderson, the Black Open Animator, coming back to you with another video. And in this video, I have Jennifer McSpadden. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, Jennifer, can you give like a little bio about yourself? Sure. Yeah, Jennifer McSpadden. I currently live in uh, Los Angeles. I'm a, uh, my current role as a senior senior motion capture supervisor at Goodbye Kansas Studios. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of virtual production. Uh, my background has been mostly in motion capture, and then I started out uh, in grade school doing uh, live news broadcasts. So I've been trying to stay in the film industry and entertainment industry for a long time. Nice. My first question: Where mm -hmm. are you from, and how was it growing up? Yeah, so originally I'm from a suburb outside of Atlanta, Snellville. Um, so I grew up there. Um, was I was born in Philadelphia, but I was in Atlanta for most of my childhood uh, up until going to uh, college in Savannah, Georgia. So definitely been in Georgia for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, we grew up in we our parents looked around for um, for some for a good good public school systems. So I ended up being fortunate enough to grow up around a very good public school district and was around a lot of, um, it was definitely a more affluent area. You definitely had, um, over time I saw the diversity change, but mm -hmm. definitely a more so Caucasian neighborhood than than your average in Atlanta, um, which um, opened the door, I would say, to some interesting opportunities and related to school because mm -hmm. of the amount of funding coming into that district. So growing up there was definitely interesting. Um, my mom is white, my dad is black. So we definitely got some interesting looks from people growing up, some questions. Um, my dad worked uh, graveyard shifts. So I was often with my mom and my sister. And I was often asked if I was adopted. We often got those questions, but rarely were people treating us poorly. It was just more of a of, of a look at, a look like, oh, they look different, you know, it was that kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. But it, in the big picture, I had a good experience in the South, you know, as good as you can probably have, I would think. Um, definitely, I recognize that as that as a, a blessing, you know, and, and yeah. an exception. Um, but yeah, I kind of I grew up there. We, um, we, uh, like I said, had really amazing um, resources at our school. We had a full live broadcast system at our school, which was really special to be able to kind of have the opportunity to hone skills at a young age, um, which I took advantage of. Um, my sister's a performer. She was very active in musical theater there. So we definitely had a really good childhood. It's just uh, my sister and I. Mm -hmm. So we, we remain very close. Um, yeah. So that's great. Um, and then I went to school in Savannah, Georgia for, for college. I was there for my undergrad and grad studies. And then eventually my parents and my sister moved out to Las Vegas, kind of leaving me all alone <laughs> in Georgia. And then I was like, all right, I got to finally move out west. Um, so in the last couple of years, I joined them out here. Um, they're in, they're by Las Vegas. I'm in LA, so we're still really close. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's been kind of the, the journey out west, the long, long journey. So with um, doing the broadcasting, did you originally have a different career that you wanted to do or was the broadcasting like a, more of a hobby and you didn't think you were going to do it as a career? Well, I would say that when I first saw the first Lord of the Rings movie in the theater, I said, mm -hmm. I don't care what I'm going to, what I have to do. I don't care if I'm, you know, running coffee. I don't care if I'm cleaning up. I'm going to be on movie sets. Like that was my decision. And that was like the ninth grade, I want to say. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw that we had the live broadcast class and I thought this might be the closest thing I can do to uh, film production right now. So that's kind of the reason why I got into it. I didn't mm -hmm. necessarily want to do news 
um, live news, but I, I was I was able to learn um, video editing. Like we had um, very early Avid systems there to edit and got to um, direct the show. So I definitely got really into the live broadcast, but my goal was always to eventually transition into film school mm -hmm. um, and focus in that direction. So it was more of a stepping stone, definitely a very uh, active hobby in a way. Um, yeah. But I think I was one of the weird ones that knew what they wanted to do right away, you know, yeah. and stuck with it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so was there any, do you have anything else in like your art animation media journey as like in your childhood? Did you, did you, were you creative in any other ways? It's funny. I, that was my one outlet. I was definitely more of the math and science kid. I yeah. was, you know, calculus physics. I was, I was going in that direction. I, I never drew or I tried to, and I was really bad at it. So, but like when I started um, art school down at, um, at SCAD in Savannah, that's where I mm -hmm. went. I had to take um, initial like intro to drawing classes, color theory classes. And I was, I think I got decent grades because I tried really hard. It definitely didn't have the background. Thank I was not the kid, yeah, for sure. I was never doodling, it was never that. So I definitely, that was a new world to me, the actual the artistic part of it, the technical, mm -hmm. like, you know, engineering part of it made sense to me. So I, I had to retrain what I was doing. I, I always took a lot of, of photographs when we took when we took on vacations and stuff. So that was probably the mm -hmm. most creative thing I did in my free time without really thinking about it. But it never really drew, never painted. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, with, well, actually, were your uh, parents supportive of your artistic, you know, creative interests? Yeah, very much so. My parents are musicians. So they, okay. uh, they I think they went through the, what are you going to do for a real job kind of thing from their parents. So I think mm -hmm. they, I definitely was, um, was experienced that 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 blessing to be able to have parents that were like go for it jen you know like mm -hmm. do your thing like we i always had very real talk especially from my father about what it meant to you know be fi financially stable to to function to be able to like you know play the game like you know you gotta like plan for things but he never discounted what i wanted to do he always yeah. he always knew that like you know you're gonna you're probably going to find a way to do this and, and be successful at it. So I'm not worried about what you're doing. It's just how you're doing it is, is, how, I, is how I'm going to give my advice. Uh, so I appreciate that. And like for my, my sister as well, like as a, as a singer, a performer, um, we've both had that support um, because my parents went through it and they went through yeah. that um, without, I guess, going as far in their career as we've been able to. So they mm -hmm. understand what it means to go for it and what it means to have to step away from art and get that real job to make the money. So they they were able to give us amazing ad advice and perspective mm -hmm. when it comes to cultivating an artistic career and how to do that successfully. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not on Twitter much, but I remember being on Twitter maybe a few weeks ago and this, I saw some uh, tweet where the lady was talking about how her child had, um, went and did something artistic and now they were kind of a failure and mm -hmm. I'm, that made me want to tweet like uh you know most times artistic people are failures because their journey includes not being supported not getting the resources and then their parents call them a failure at the end when they didn't even help them do yeah. it like in any type of better way <laughs> they're yeah. like downing them the whole time and it's like no wonder they're unsuccessful <laughs> 
It's true. It's true. And and it's it's like any other career. Like you need the support of your family. You mm -hmm. need the support of your of your community. I remember going to my first year at uh, university, coming back and seeing old friends. And because I went to art school, they were asking questions like, well, do you guys just use crayons and, and paint and draw all day? And I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. That's what we do all day long. Like it's it, there's, I think, an attitude yeah. about creative careers um, from people that it's like, some kind of easy way out or it doesn't take nearly as much dedication or or intellect or something. I don't know where it comes from because my, I noticed that most people that critique it have never tried to do that kind of thing themselves. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance is real because it's like there's a dichotomy of understanding that they can't draw and can't do it, but then thinking it's easy. Like, what? Right. <laughs> What? Right. I don't do that about your career. Like, I'm not going to discount what you're up to. Like, but yeah, it's, and, but then everybody consumes the results that artists mm -hmm. create. So there's definitely a value to what we do. They just, mm -hmm. people don't seem to value or understand the process. They just want to see the outcome and put it, and then put a price tag on the outcome, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> so, um, uh, you got a bachelor's in film. I know, mm -hmm. um, like when I went to college, there was only like three colleges I could pick from because I wanted to do animation and sports. And, you know, our mm. animation schools don't have sports. So it was like yeah. RIT, which is where I went, and mm. or St. Right. Clair College in Canada. Right. <laughs> so I was just like, and then I ended up not playing basketball because <laughs> I didn't like the coach. But anyway, um, so at SCAD, were you able to, like with getting the film degree, were you able to kind of tailor it to what you were interested in? How does the degree program work and how, how did you like take advantage of it? Yeah, that is a very good point. That there are just a handful of schools to choose from, mm -hmm. um, especially on the East Coast. Like that was a big deal too. Mm -hmm. um, they, it was a, it's a four-year program for the Bachelors of Fine Arts. So we were able to have a good amount of electives to be able to explore other departments. Mm -hmm. And what I appreciated about that program, at least when I went through it, uh, 2005 to 2009 for undergrad, mm -hmm. um, we had, there were prerequisites, but they weren't required to happen right away. So as long as they happened before the class that you needed to have them for, you could kind of spread things out. So okay. I was able to take my first film class my second quarter there. It's a quarter mm -hmm. system versus semesters. But mm -hmm. as a freshman, I was in my first uh, class within my major. I noticed at some other schools, you kind of had to wait till almost like your second year, do all your prereqs first. So yeah. I appreciated that because I felt like I was able to um, to spend four years on my major as opposed to maybe two and a half or something that you, it kind of felt like I was gonna have some other places. So that yeah. was really, really beneficial. And we had um, some great um, resources at that school, like a really amazing equipment checkout system, like a, mm -hmm. a whole like rental house. And there were level systems to what you could take out from that, from that, um, from that inventory. So we were able to, if you could work with somebody at a higher level, then you could, you could get your hands on equipment sooner. So yeah. they definitely made it a little easy for people to uh, to find ways to to do that extra work or go that extra mile right away. I thought mm -hmm. that was great. And being in a city like Savannah uh, without a traditional closed campus, I definitely appreciated what it meant to feel a little bit more independent right away. Mm -hmm. I, I was 17 when I started because of my a late birthday. So yeah. to be there um, in a in a in a residence hall, you know, going through the city to get to the different buildings, it definitely felt more like I was like a grown up out on my own, you know. <laughs> so I appreciated that, but it also kind of it made the film department very interesting because being there without a car for at mm -hmm. first in a city, taking equipment and like 
lugging it down the sidewalk, you know, through the city back to where you need to shoot. Like definitely made you feel like you were doing some kind of like guerrilla filming. <laughs> yeah. you know? Like I think we're getting in the trenches right away, but it was, it was good. It was definitely mm -hmm. offered a really interesting perspective and the city is beautiful. So all you had to do was turn your camera on and shoot and you've got some, something gorgeous to turn in. So that was a, a nice benefit as well. Yeah. It sounds like RIT's program is kind of similar to, um, mm. Scared. I know. Uh, I'm guessing it's more. It's more. Uh, more beneficial, quote unquote, to maybe go to a more of an artistic school than a liberal arts school. Because mm. I remember our first, our freshman year, uh, they were like, "Yeah, we're better than NYU because you get cameras your first year." <laughs> I looked at NYU. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I thought about that. Because <laughs> like um, our first quarter, we did uh, a Bolex camera, which is you got to wind it for power. And then yep. like the digital camera second quarter, and then we did digital the third quarter, but we concentrated on like sound design or whatever. But because I went for animation, it was cool that I got to have my first three D class my spring quarter of freshman year. So that's great. Um, I think I was, yeah, I was one of the only freshmen maybe in that class, but that was really cool because um, at RIT in the film and it's called sofa school of film and animation mm -hmm. so like everybody does film the first year and then everybody kind of goes off to their thing the second year so unless you're like unless you made friends with the film students and maybe worked on their projects which i feel like i should have done more <laughs> to be honest um you don't really interact with the film people that all too often after when you go to sophomore year so gotcha that's so important though to, to start out with the same foundation yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, that's something that we often talked about at, at SCAD, like wishing that we had more required, you know, storyboarding classes as film majors yeah. or that, you know, the Viz effects majors were over with us more, you know, like we wish that we had a bit more cross departmental. I think they've changed that sense mm -hmm. um, because of those needs. But yeah, it's it's so important to understand the other parts of the pipeline that are going to affect you eventually and take some of those courses to be able to communicate better. I think yeah. we would have had more, you know, interdepartmental projects as a result had we been a bit more active together right away, as yeah. opposed to waiting till our senior project to to finally like scout people out, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um. So, is it is Savannah known for being haunted? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Like that. Yes. I at first I thought it was like you know part of the tourist trap. You know, like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, had a lot of Confederate history here, of course, you know, but um, I, I saw some things there. <laughs> I really did. So yeah. <laughs> things that I was not prepared for, you know, when, when things kind of hit you in a place of absolute ignorance, uh -huh. it's like, I can't make, I couldn't have made that up. Like, I wasn't even... There's no way that that was I something no that, for this story. No, no, no <laughs> prior experience. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely saw some stuff. And the the uh, the dorm that I was in my first two years um, notoriously had a couple ghosts in it. Like it was mm -hmm. on the ghost tour stop. Like they would stop in front of our dorm and point up and say, "This, this, and this happened there." So, <laughs> I I I think that I had a couple experiences specifically. Um, they're kind of longer stories, but it yeah. made me made me more of a believer than I thought I was, honestly. <laughs>
<laughs> but I, I we um I did this summer. I was an I was a residence assistant um mm -hmm. for three mm -hmm. of the years I was there for undergrad, and I did the summer programs as well. So we would take because it was a bunch of minors over the summer. We would go on these tours with them, and I I have some of the ghost tours memorized by now because I went on so many of them because of the summer yeah. programs. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy how like everywhere you turn in Savannah, there's some kind of elaborate story that happened at this building mm -hmm. or in that square and. Yeah, it's I think I think it might be legitimate. <laughs> so what made you kind of get the two separate degrees, like one in film and then the master's is in visual effects? So wait, was that the original plan or how did you decide that? I hadn't I I hadn't initially planned to do grad school uh, going through undergrad. I mm -hmm. focused on film editing in undergrad and I was on set uh, doing script supervision. Um, and when I finished, I was thinking, you know, I, without making a major move and major life change, I don't know what to do now. You know, I, I because I wasn't going the directing route, I wasn't acting, I wasn't a producer, I didn't have any family in the industry, you know, mm -hmm. immediate context. I'm like, I don't know what, where to go with this right away. But I, so I feel like there's more to this and that I want to understand. And because I was focusing so much on post-production with film and a, and a little bit of sound, I was like, I think I need to understand a bit more about the post-production process in general. And that's mm -hmm. what kind of made me look at the visual effects major. Um, and when I got into it, I kept thinking, man, I should have taken more of these these electives as, mm -hmm. if, as opposed to like, I took some electives that I wanted to try, but I think I should have focused more on that. Yeah. It was so much more related to what I was doing within the film. Mm -hmm. um, and then within that having, I took like one Maya class total like in my all of my undergrads so that mm -hmm. was a complete 180 in my understanding uh, to get into 3d space um yeah. kind of wrap my head around all that but i dove right into that because i wanted to understand what the other departments were going to end up doing around me like how yeah. do i communicate with the compositors how do i communicate with um texture artists lighters and then um as as part of the electives that were part of the master's program, I was able to take motion capture classes and understand animation a bit more. Mm -hmm. And that really sparked my interest. I was like, oh, I really, I really wish I had done this sooner, you know? Yeah. Um, I took like a steady cam class in undergrad. Like I took some of those types of classes, which were really great, but it's like, that's not really what I wanted to focus on as much. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I wanted to round out my understanding of post post-production um and, and it's that's paid off so much you know yeah. i definitely use all this i use a lot of the skills on and still editing um from undergrad but it was really the the master's program that made me realize you know where i was like made me see where i could fit into all of this yeah um so i always say like all forms of animation are, are tedious you just have to find the tedious tasks that you like so what mm -hmm. tediousness in the animation vfx industry do you love <laughs> i uh within motion capture i really got into what it meant to track shots mm -hmm. yeah so yeah like because you're tracking and identifying every single marker throughout an entire take for every single frame like that has to be as accurate as possible and depending mm -hmm. on the software you use Sometimes it's automated. Sometimes you're sitting and doing it by hand. Mm -hmm. And I know for um, on my first uh, when I first got out of out of school, I worked at um, Giant Studios, Profile Studios, mm -hmm. um, for motion capture. And sometimes they had shows where they were capturing and couldn't put mocap cameras up, so they had to use the footage. And we were hand tracking that footage mm -hmm. to to 
create the data that you would have usually had for, for capture and then um, letting that drive a CG character. So it was all image-based. Yeah. That was like, you are kind of sitting in there and frame by frame, mm -hmm. following all the major points on like a fractal suit of an actor. Mm -hmm. It's very tedious, but I, I just, it, it, it was so rewarding in the end that I'm like, oh, this is nice. I don't mind this. Um, yeah. I'm also a big spreadsheet nerd. Like if I can spreadsheet it, I'm going to do it and it's going to be amazing. So <laughs> I got, I mean, that kind of data entry, I don't know. I, I don't mind it. I've always yeah. been more okay with the, the tedious things, but um, yeah, I think that's, I find that a bit more, re more rewarding than like having to label a thousand cables, you know, like, you know, there's some things I'm like, I just can't do that right now. <laughs> but well, can you explain um, like tracking and what it, what it is or relating to whatever? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, or just mocap in general, like it's, it's, yeah. I can definitely give a quick rundown of what that is um, and some of the major steps of it. Um, so you have cameras that are often looking for, that are throwing infrared light onto um, what are often like reflective markers on a person. If they're not actively sending a signal, they're just reflective, uh, like 3M tape at mm -hmm. a certain size. And the cameras are, are, are dialed in to really only look for the absolute highlights in an image. Mm -hmm. So it looks like security camera footage that's been like turned way down. Um, so once those cameras are calibrated, they, they're triangulated, they're all converging on points in the same space. After you do all of your captures, you then take that data and have to track the data. And that means every single, that there's um, there's labels or IDs of each marker. Like this is the head marker, this one's on the right, the right shoulder, that kind of thing. And you would make sure that the IDs for the markers are accurate on every frame of, of the entire range of whatever take you need. Like it may yeah. be the whole take, if you have plan input, it's a portion of it. And mm -hmm. you would go through and make sure that those IDs are accurate throughout as best as possible. And if there are points, times where that marker is occluded and you can't see it, you would kind of have to either compensate for it or plan to edit through that later. But once the IDs are, are, are properly, um, labeled, you would then export that. I'm a giant Lightstorm um, capture specialist. Mm -hmm. So within that software, there's a refining step that kind of puts very, very, um, very specific smoothing um, passes along and filters along that data. So it looks a bit more naturalistic and less jittery, less yeah. prone to a camera's, um, you know, trying to like, ah, oh, it's right here, it's this pixel, yeah. it's that pixel. So it kind of gives, gives it a little bit of smoothing pass. Then you take it into editing software similar to Motion Builder within that suite, and mm -hmm. you finish editing all of that out. And then you get more into uh, more traditional animation concepts for editing, but you are dealing with a keyframe on every frame on every bone. So it's a lot more data to deal with. Um, so what we end up doing is um, making kind of sweeping changes versus uh, taking keyframes out and then blending back between them. We kind of take major moments and then redraw curves between them so that it all stays intact. Yeah. And then, so our turnover to our clients are often, you know, um, fully baked animation and then they can decide to reduce that that uh, keyframe density on their end if they like. Um, yeah. But so for us, it's usually that very uh, heavy amount of data that we're dealing with the entire time. Nice. And then, yeah. So I definitely, I definitely believe that any type of person can can do any type of job. But what kinds of interests could people have that might be interested in like visual effects or motion capture? Like, what kind of person <laughs> would possibly be interested? Right. Well, 
to the to the point of or the question of what tedious tasks do you like you got to be able to be okay with tedious tasks i think that's something that's definitely a certain type of person yeah you know, if that kind of thing infuriates you you probably shouldn't go this way because it's going to be like that sometimes yeah um I've noticed people that can communicate really well, especially in written form. That's very mm -hmm. important. Leaving notes for each other, um, having very specific uh, conversations with clients, especially for for VizFX vendors. Unless you're working at a big studio where you're making your own content within house, you're often mm -hmm. dealing with other studios, yeah, other people that don't speak your language, that don't know what you're doing. Um, there's so there's definitely a level of of technical communication that needs to be clear. You need to be able to like. I, I also feel like. Um, going through the master's program, we had to often turn in our homework in the form of a website with a full breakdown of what we did. So being able to document what you did, being able mm -hmm. to like to communicate through screen grabs, through illustrations, through written um, formats, through video demonstrations. There's a lot of, um, I feel like a lot of analysis of what you do and, and you have to be able to describe that to other people in order to yeah. get on the same page. Yeah. I think that's very important. And I also, um, I'd say half of what I've done so far has been on, on set and, and being on set is in a whole other ballgame of the type of person you have to be, you know, there's mm -hmm. definitely a, you have to set your ego aside when you go on set. There's definitely a, a hierarchy amongst people on set, but there's definitely also a, we are all part of a team. We mm -hmm. have a collective goal in mind, and I, if you need help and I can help you, I'm going to jump in and do it, regardless of yeah. the position I'm in. Like, not like you know, oh, that's beneath that's beneath my job title to do that task. That doesn't exist as much on set, I've noticed. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely that kind of transition, and mm -hmm. I noticed that a lot of people in post production, there's definitely a certain type of person that you often mm -hmm. find behind the computer, mm -hmm. and sometimes that isn't the same type of person that you find on set so being able to be a chameleon is also very important like i need to be yeah. able to, to talk to like the more introverted computer people you mm -hmm. know what i mean like that's the type of person yeah. i can be that person sometimes and i also need to be like the super like you know on top of my stuff talking to mm -hmm. everybody very communicative very enthusiastic yeah. person that you need to be on stage sometimes so i think a lot of it is can you act those roles out to be yeah. able to deal with very different types of teams and communicate very differently at times. I mean, obviously on top of your technically knowing what you're doing, that's obviously yeah. helpful, <laughs> but it's more of a personality thing that, that makes or breaks whether or not you can excel and move up. Yeah, yeah I, um, I can imagine how hard it is to communicate with people who don't really know what you're doing. I feel like I had to do that when I worked for the state of Louisiana um, as an animation specialist because I'm working with like engineers, subject matter experts, people in government that like don't know what animation is. And I'm just, and I remember like one key thing that made me realize when you're uh, communicating with people who aren't in the industry, like the definition of words, there was one project I was working on where they used the word animation, but they meant image. And so that's two totally different things. <laughs> and then I, we had to kind of reel back and like, oh, they meant image, so let's give them images. And then I was in a meeting like, oh, where are the animations? I'm like, well, we realized that you actually meant images initially, so we're not doing animations anymore because <laughs> we used the wrong word. And wow. so they're like, what? And then you, when you show somebody more, then it's like to bring it back. It's like, mm -hmm. what? You can't do that to people. So it's like making sure that okay, is this what you actually mean? Because people yes. not in the animation industry will call a illustrated image an animation. It's like, that's not what an animation is. Right. 
Right. Not like a like a 2D Disney animator. Like there's a difference. Like, yeah. yeah. I think, oh, it's so hard because you have to also find a way of doing that without like making them feel like they're being condescended to, you know? <laughs> like I'm simply defining what my job title is and what my department does. I'm not trying to make you feel some kind of way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's tough. Yeah. Um oh yeah. So can you kind of um, define what a motion capture supervisor and a virtual production specialist is? Sure, sure. Um, so within motion capture uh, specifically, you'll often have either either two teams or a team that, that kind of has two tasks. You have the, the, the onset team that handles the, the capture from the beginning. Like it starts from once your actor's suited up, you know, putting markers on that actor, calibrating them, making sure the space is calibrated itself to be able to receive accurate data. Um, you've got people that are running around on the floor, making sure that markers when they fall off get replaced, people at different computers running different aspects of it. And then there's often somebody who's on the floor kind of calling the shots, like who's out there talking to the director, who's listening in, working with maybe the virtual camera operator and saying, okay, here's what's next. We're moving on to this. We need you to swap these props out. Okay, this actor is almost done. So it's kind of somebody who's who's like stage directing in a way. And that's often what the supervisor ends up doing. Mm -hmm. um, that's my role now. I was often the person at the computer running the capture software okay. um, before and also um, defining the volume before we, before we shot to make sure that it was calibrated well. So mm -hmm. I've now moved into the role that's more so, okay, guys, here's what's next. Yeah. Kind of calling back to everybody. Um, the person running their mouth on the mic, I'm sure... I'm sure everybody loves that. You know, that's me now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so that's the role on set. And then in post, you're the person that's making sure that everything's coming together because there are so many things that often happen on set, things you have to kind of in the moment compensate for that has to then be communicated to the animators. Say, hey, we did this. Sorry, here's why. Frankenstein these three components together and you'll get what you need. Yeah. So that's often now that person having to, to, you know, take all that information and, and bestow it upon everybody else who was just kind of sitting and waiting, you know. Yeah. Um, so that that's that role to kind of carry it through. Um, there's often a, a, an involvement in, in pre-production for a shoot um, that the supervisor gets to be a part of, like help help a client plan out. Like oftentimes clients that have never used motion capture, it's similar to what you just talked about. They don't know what they need. Yeah. They don't know how it's accomplished. They, they know what they want the final result to be, and we need to be able to translate how you actually execute that type of thing uh, or the things that you don't need to actually worry about that are handled later. Like it's kind mm -hmm. of having to, there's a bit of an educational uh, role in, yeah. with the supervisor in that case. And then for virtual production, that's, that's such a big catch-all term. I've been giving talks about what that actually means. Because mm -hmm. I, think, I think with um, The Mandalorian and Disney, I think that's when a lot of people started to hear the term virtual production and started okay. to associate it with media walls mm -hmm. and what that production did. But virtual, I mean, they were doing virtual production on the first Avatar movie, on, on Polar Express. On, mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been around for a long time. It's really about visualizing um, effects and any type of post-production work that you would typically only see in post while you're shooting. Okay. So it could be like the live replacement of a background is simply, mm -hmm. once you've been able to do that, it requires, you know, tracking your camera, um, aligning everything up. You've now kind of gone into the world of virtual production. Yeah. Um, so it's, 
the media wall is just, you know, another major tool within that wheelhouse or another major workflow that you have to consider. So the virtual production supervisor is also on stage in particular, working with multiple departments, making sure everything is in sync. Like Mm -hmm. sound department usually has the master clock. They're the ones that are determining um, jam points for time code amongst all departments. Um, the, it's the virtual it's the virtual production supervisor that's trying to vie for more time from the assistant director. Like we need 30 more seconds to get ready. You know, like that's that person. Yeah. The one that's also saying, hey, there's a giant fan coming in that's gonna block this camera from this side. We need to move and restructure. So yeah. they're, the, they're also kind of, you know, calling out the craziness that's happening on set and trying to make sense of that for everybody. That's usually behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, virtual production, I think, is in, as a whole, is is what we're moving towards. Like I think I see a lot of stages and a lot of sets becoming virtual production sets, even if they're only using an aspect of um, or, or a certain workflow within that tool belt. It, yeah. It's still, I think, that's just going to be what we're going to call most productions nowadays. Like nice. something's going to be in that category, even if it's just like I said, background replacement. Mm-hmm virtual production. So um, I'm just going to list some projects that you've worked on. Uh, I do that just so people can know Black people worked on some of your favorite ones. <laughs> so you worked on Middle, and I get ridiculous with it, so don't, don't worry. But anyway, <laughs> Middle Earth, Shadow of Mortar, which is a video game, uh, Call of Duty, Advanced War video game, Halo 5, Guardians uh, video game, Star Wars, Episode uh, Seven, The Force Awakens, Warcraft, The Great Wall, Thor, Ragnarok. I don't know if I mispronounced. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> I'm like, I know I'm not a Marvel person. <laughs> oh, Black Panther, Avengers, Infinity War, Welcome to Morrowind, Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man, Far From Home. This is what was on your IMDb. So that's it's true. Awesome. <laughs> it's accurate. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so, um, can you talk about what was your biggest breakthrough in your career? So yeah, far? yeah, I think, um, so my first time on set was Thor Ragnarok. And mm-hmm. I think that's what really changed. That's what really kind of put me where I am now. Um, mm-hmm. It was from that show, getting into the Marvel family that you really made all the contacts that you would never have had if you were only at the computer. That's, that's yeah. what, that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, what, that's what allowed me to, um, to look to to Sweden to the company I'm at now to come back to be I've I've been I'm getting headhunted all the time because of those credits I think it's being on stage is what really changed everything mm-hmm. because that's what that's what also puts you in tr- in front of the 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 VizFX supervisors at all these major studios mm-hmm. and and then that they remember you they you know you, your team does a good job as as a female in a technical role, I stood mm-hmm. out as a black person on stage at all. You stood out. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely something that like people remembered me because I was I was different in the role I was in. Mm-hmm. So that definitely changed everything. Um, that was Thor Ragnarok was down in Australia, so that was also my first time uh, traveling like that. And I was there for six months, so I got to live there. I, it was really nice. amazing. Yeah, that was. That was an incredible life experience as well mm-hmm. as a, a, a career change or, or um, a pivotal moment in my career there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was learning how to operate the software on stage. Like I showed up with a, about a week of rehearsals before we 
before that first shot with with Ruffalo, and we were like, I was like, I have to learn this in a week. This is crazy. I've got to shoot a whole movie. Like this is this isn't just a rehearsal. This is nuts. So that was I remember those first couple of weeks. I I was just a ball of stress, and then it became really really cool after that very quickly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was a lot. Um, but yeah, that was, I think, the big moment because I, I afterwards I was still coming home back to the office, still doing post-production, but with yeah. a completely different perspective. I understood both ends of the workflow, which mm-hmm. I think then improved the back end because I understood the front end. I understood yeah. where this data was coming from. And I understood I was able to better communicate. I was learning you know, you go through film school, you hear about different departments and roles and whatnot, but when you're there, you're actually seeing everybody operate. For some reason, I totally forgot everything I learned about the hierarchy within other departments. Like, who's the best boy in the first ACs? Which one? And like, I, I lost, I, it was just like a blur seeing people actually doing that in person. Yeah. Um, so I think that was one of the biggest learning experiences I've ever had, really, was mm-hmm. that first show. Have you ever, I mean, have you gotten the opportunity to go anywhere else international? Yeah, so um, uh, when my my partner, who's also doing um, motion capture, when he was in uh, Canada, I got to go up there and be on, and uh, he was, when he was on the Welcome to Marwin set, mm-hmm. I got to go visit him. Um, I was doing most of the post-production for that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then w- together, after leaving um, Profile Studios, we went under- over to Goodbye Kansas, where we are now, and spent the first nine months living in Stockholm. Nice. Um, getting used, get, getting that, um, used to that company at their headquarters, kind of meeting the teams. Um, we, we came in as mo- mocap specialists to kind of work with their current department. So we're still with the company back in LA, but that's been the majority of the, um, of the travel I've been able to do. And I appreciate that kind of travel because you really get to get to experience a full culture. Like it's yeah. it's nice to visit places, but there's yeah. nothing like living somewhere for a while. Yeah. You have a different perspective entirely. Um, so yeah, I think that's been tremendous. And ideally if things come together, I can't talk about them. There's some more traveling coming up in the future to new places. So nice. add a couple continents to the belt, I hope. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, after I lived in South Korea, I would definitely suggest any American to kind of mm. live internationally because you kind of get a understanding that there's multiple ways to live and they be correct. <laughs> like, yes. yes. Like the American way of living is not the only way to live. Right. I would love to visit Korea. That's on my list. That sounds yeah. amazing. Where were you there? Um, I went there to teach English. Okay. Um, my first year, so I was in Gwangju which is in Jalanamdo in the southwest because there's a Gwangju in the northeast. And then uh, I was in Seoul my second year. I worked for an animation company. So That's really cool. So what did you like about the different cultures of like Sweden and uh, Australia? Um, Australia first, I guess. That was the first major experience. I Mm -hmm. noticed um, like it's – Australia is about the size of the states, Mm -hmm. but there's less than – the amount of people in LA County in the whole country, right? So it's like, it's a paradise over <laughs> there. It's, it's just, the environment is gorgeous. It's, mm-hmm. I was up in Brisbane, um, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, a climate more more similar to Florida or California. Like Denver mm-hmm. got very cold in the winter I was there. Um, but I just noticed that the, the people there are like, there's just, um, there's much more of a relaxed feel yeah. Like mm-hmm. everybody seems a lot more cool. I did. I noticed that right away. People were um, 
excited and encouraged to, to meet you and talk. And it's definitely a very international country. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people from China there, a lot of people from India there. It was, that was beautiful to see. Mm -hmm. um, but I just loved the, I loved the environment there. Like you, you drive like 20 minutes out of the city and you're like in the jungle up a mountain. Like it was, it was amazing. Like that was, it was, it was really cool to see people that that cared a lot about their environment. You could tell that everything was kind of catered to mm -hmm. keeping the place clean and, and as pristine and as lovely as it has been for so long. Yeah. Um, I also got to visit just for a few days over New Zealand. And mm -hmm. that was like, you know, we, of course we did the Lord of the Rings thing. And that was a, that was a dream, but it was really cool to see that part of the country or that part of the world, because there's something very similar. It, feel, it felt very at home in Australia. There's something very similar there to the mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. um, we're driving on the other side of the road, you know, the currency is still the dollar, even though it, there's a different um, different uh, rate there, but yeah. everybody's speaking English. There's something very familiar about that environment um, versus in Sweden, like everybody knows English, but everybody's speaking Swedish around you. Like that was definitely completely different. Yeah. I think as, especially as a language, it's, it's so different from, from English and from the other things that you're exposed to in the States that that yeah. alone was was a big thing so um but there uh we used to, i was using public transport like really for the first time there especially being mm -hmm. in atlanta it's so much more of a of a car state you know um yeah. so got getting used to the to the the buses and the trains and and you know learning very specific swedish words to get around mm -hmm. and to order mm -hmm. menus like that was that was a fun experience for that reason because it was the first place i was where english wasn't the 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 default everywhere you yeah. went but um, it was, I think the biggest thing there that was so different, like the work culture was very nice. Everybody was very welcoming at work. Um, but I also noticed like it's gets dark in the winter at mm -hmm. like 30 in the afternoon oh, and the sun doesn't come up. If it does, it comes up at 10 in the morning for like an hour. Like that was, and then what we got there on midsummer when the sun never went down. And so like the jet lag was crazy because yeah. you don't know what day it is anyway. Um, so I think <laughs> that was, that was just environmentally such a different experience that it definitely affected. You could see how it affects people's moods. Yeah. If people talk yeah. about it. It's not like just a, an outsider looking in like people there were talking about how everybody's kind of gets kind of down in the winter because it's dark all the time. Everybody's very excited and very, you know, enthusiastic in the summertime. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely, um, culturally there, their schedule's a bit different from from this, from this North America as even in uh, Australia. Like mm -hmm. they, there's definitely, um, you know, nationwide vacation time that happens yeah. in the summertime and the holidays, which changes the uh, production schedule a bit. So that took some getting used to just to understand like what a, work-life balance feels like, yeah. you know, like, oh, we get to have some time off. What does that mean? You know, so, not a bad thing to experience, just right. a very different thing to experience. Which on the other hand, when I worked at the animation company, uh, I only got three vacation days a year, <laughs> which right. was I only worked there for one year. Right. But, um, Still. Yeah. Being in a country where English is not the main language, it's like every day you leave your house is an adventure. <laughs> Everything is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily I learned how to read Korean, so I could like I could get around Korea much better than anywhere. Like, cause the public transportation system is so awesome. Mm -hmm. I I can get anywhere in the country as long as I can read and know where I'm going. Like, okay, I can take this long distance bus here. I can take the subway. Blah blah. That's so, cool. Yeah. 
<laughs> so important. <laughs> Can you talk about the opportunity to do the Unreal Fellowship for virtual production? Uh, what project did you focus on and how did it help you in your career? Yeah, yeah, that was that was really great. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, after um, Profile Studios kind of dissolved, some of the some of the people that were more senior um, employees there went over to Epic, and I heard about the program through them. Like, hey, you should apply. This makes mm -hmm. sense, you know. Um, so yeah, that was really cool to go in. I made some amazing connections. People I'm still working with from that program, um, but I think that was invaluable to be able to learn from the people that wrote yeah. the engine, like. That that's that's crazy. That's that's it's great to have those people as personal connections now, because I was using the engine a lot on set as a as a visualization tool. Um, I had taken a class or two in in school back when it was even before the current versions of Unreal. So yeah. I had an idea of what to do in there, but it was amazing to really kind of start over. I I, I loved university so it was nice to be in a class you know like I, I appreciate that kind of structure um but i think it was just amazing to go through everything that you would need for preparing for a virtual production shoot or a cinematic um mm -hmm. things that were focused more on that as opposed to game logic specifically you know mm -hmm. it's yeah. it nice to see as a as a as a digital a creation tool what can unreal do um, and as a real-time renderer, that was amazing. So our prompt was to do like a chase scene for mm -hmm. our final. Um, some people did more creative projects and I was one of those, I was the nerd that followed the prompts. I'll do my chase scene. You know, I kind of <laughs> wish I had maybe done a little bit something else. Uh, Cause yeah. like, for me, it was like, it was a lot of animation to, to put together. Um, yeah. And I wasn't familiar with the animation tools before within mm -hmm. Unreal. So that was definitely a big learning curve. Um, but I, I, from what what my computer was allowing me to do, I think mm -hmm. I did a good. I, I learned a lot, you know. Um, I, as soon as it was over, I was I was looking up new hardware. Like I need to upgrade. I want to be able to do the ray tracing and then the baking in the stuff and all the really cool things, you know. So <laughs> it made me want to upgrade afterwards to continue. Yeah. Um, but I since then I I I'm now able to give some introductory talks to my current company for people that don't know Unreal. Like, mm -hmm. I'll, you know, here's the basics, like introductory classes and stuff. So I'm able yeah. to take that that knowledge and immediately pass it on to people, create like a little curriculum. Because um, now, because it's between that and what exists on the Unreal learning site, you can you can learn it from scratch. It's a, it's a, such an amazing tool that they give away for for free for people to learn. It's it's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> like learn it if you, if you, if you don't know it already, like you're crazy to not, <laughs> jump into it you know it's it's yeah. gonna be used so much but yeah that that experience was wonderful I, I'm so impressed that they're doing that there were a hundred of us in my class mm -hmm. so when they let people in they're letting in about a hundred people at a time so okay. I think it's important because they're it's an amazing way to evangelize to people in all different types of roles yeah um, and all different types of technical roles like we were meeting the the networking opportunities were incredible for that reason too um, because there's people in industries you'd never thought about that would need to use these tools that you now, now I know the, the supervisor over here or the producer over there. So yeah. that was great. Yeah. So um, I know you stated earlier that you've pre been pretty lucky as far as, you know, your experience in the South, but ha have, mm -hmm. um, how has being Black, a woman, a Black woman, or any other ism impacted you in your visual effects career? Yeah, uh, I think... Um, 
What's interesting about that is you think about some of the stereotypes that people have mm -hmm. about black women in general. Like you mm -hmm. hear these things and you, I, I almost find myself acting differently so that people can't try to use some type of excuse to, or blame me for some type of behavior, you know, like, oh, you're getting, like, you're getting, why are you getting so, like, heated up about this? Like, why are you, like, you know, why are you overreacting? Like, why are you getting so, like, you know, calm down? Like, I've been told to calm down or slow down or, like, mm -hmm. all that, like, you know, and I think that sometimes I'm like, you wouldn't say this to and anybody on your team, like just because I'm getting impassioned about something because I see something wrong and I'm like, guys, we can't do this. And I get very, very, you know, I more on a soapbox than normal. Like I tend to be more kind of more like, you know, even keel part of the team. But when I am like that, I'm often told to, to you know, calm down, you know, let it go. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of thing might have to do with with how I look, you know, yeah. I think people kind of make those assumptions right away. But I noticed that as a woman in particular, um, mm -hmm. I've, and I've noticed this from other females, not just black females, but other females in general, we are often given, um, not given the benefit of the doubt when it comes to doing, um, uh, like working with equipment, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm always, like I've been building computers since middle school. Like, <laughs> I, you know, like that's something I've been doing for a long time. And whenever mm -hmm. someone needs to like, hey, can you take that video card out? Like, can you call so-and-so over to help you take that out? I'm like, no, I can do it. Like, why wouldn't you just ask me if I can do it first? Like, there's always that kind of thing. Right. Or like removing equipment around and you go to pick something up. Oh no, let me help you. Like, I got this. Like, there's like, I'm a, I'm a pretty large lady. Like I can pick things up. Like, you know, I got this. So I think there's often that, that you experience as a, as a, as a, as a lady. And then there are times where you have to take more of a, like more of a, um, like I need some more help. Like there are times where that actually does come up and you sometimes mm -hmm. maybe feel awkward asking for help or asking for that extra day off if you're not feeling like that happens. Like yeah. there are times where being a woman does come into play and does affect your ability to work and you and you try to find ways to ask for the help without having it affect or your reputation or having yeah. somebody see you or judge you like, oh, it's, you know, she's just being a lady today, you know? So I think that's, that's the problem. Like if I get very, very frustrated, like I have to like go to the bathroom if I'm starting to tear up, like, cause like, I don't yeah. want anybody to see me emote that way. But sometimes as a female, you do emote that way more so mm -hmm. than men. And, and that's just, those types of things are what make a, make a team more dynamic. I think those are the perspectives that teams need to really excel, but those are also the things that sometimes get in the way of you being able to be you mm -hmm. um, because you're worried about how these things might come off. Um, I, in my experience, I've, I think I've, I think I've experienced or felt different um, as was a woman more so as a, as a black person. I think mm -hmm. that's come up more so um, in my role because Maybe it's just a roll of the dice, but I've always been on very international crews. Okay. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of, it's been more about being the only girl in the room oftentimes mm -hmm. than the only minority in the room, um, mm -hmm. which kind of has changed my experience just a bit. Yeah, I know um, I was working at one company and I had, you know, I just like worked on in South Korea, on like mm -hmm. Family Guy and Cleveland Show. And then I'm like at this, company stateside and I was examining a 3D model in Maya 
and the artist had um, pink wheels. And then my coworker was like, are you sure the wheels are pink? Are you not sure? Are you, is it like a light or something? I'm like, I have a whole degree in this and I just worked <laughs> at a company and you're still in school. Why are you questioning me? Like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> like, yeah. I know what I'm talking about. The wheels are pink. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, yeah. Stop yeah, yeah. my notes. I can show you, but why are you questioning me anyway? <laughs> it's like you have to keep proving your expertise. Yeah. And you feel like you that some like you look around and you're not not everybody's going through that. It's mm -hmm. yeah. I I've had to like I I was doing survey on movie sets to mm -hmm. make sure that we were giving very precise measurements, and then I go use like a tape measure, and they're like, "Are you sure you're reading that right?" <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, it's like why a, am I having to prove this to you? Measure or like, cause like, how other? What other way is there to read? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like, what do you? What do you mean? <laughs> is it that difficult of a device? Like, <laughs> it's it's it, yes, it's metric, but I got a calculator. Like, I understand what I'm doing. Like, yeah, you have to. It's weird. It's it's it, these are things that I shouldn't have to, like, especially as you as you progress like yeah I, like, I shouldn't have to keep proving this like i'm mm -hmm. yeah i'm not, I'm like, not a student controls, do you know yeah. something or sometimes i still yeah. sometimes do um especially uh especially if you're meeting people for the first time that mm -hmm. you're you know your position puts you above above mm -hmm. them within the hierarchy um to like have to say like kind of remind them like well I am a supervisor I or like this isn't my first rodeo like I'm trying <laughs> to find like like how do I say these things without being the just, angry black woman <laughs> yeah thank you like what can I do to not emote that way but emote that way like I had like yeah. there, there's it's, power to ridiculous that. <laughs> yeah 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 you're expected to be cool in their ridiculousness <laughs> yes exactly like maybe maybe you know, sarcasm and a little bit of like, all right, guy, like maybe that'll be the way that gets through to you. Because if I emote the way that my inner voice is emoting, it's not going to, yeah, it's not going to, it's just going to hit a wall, you know? And I think that's just, that's part of the acting, part of the, can you put on the face and the voice you need to put on in this moment with this person to get what you need out of them. Yeah. And, that, and that is oftentimes more of a challenge for certain people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are some cool developments that are happening in, in the VFX industry? So I'm seeing a lot of a lot of machine learning solutions coming down the line. And that's mm -hmm. going to be crazy because I hear a lot of people going, oh, it's going to take my job. Like, what do I do now? But I think that's going to really up the ability to be more creative and more flexible with mm -hmm. what we're sh what is being shot and where people decide to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be exciting being able to do like, especially looking at once again, motion capture being the, the focus of mine, um, using machine learning to analyze footage so that I don't have to put the performer in a certain outfit in order to get mm -hmm. their data. Like that's going to be crazy because yeah. then we can actually just replace or just add to um, scenes without having to break the actor's uh, immersion into that scene. Mm -hmm. Something that always came up was, you know, once you, the actor puts on the, you know, the, 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 the um, Velcro onesie and they put all the markers all over them and they have the head cam on their face and they've got all these wires all over them. 
you don't feel like you're that character anymore. Like you have yeah. to really, really immerse yourself to feel like you're back to square one. So I think being able to go in that direction is going to really change what we can do. And then looking at all the media wall technology, being able to to have more advanced ways of checking your camera, being able to mm -hmm. integrate things faster into the scene, yeah. uh, more, more being able to put more high-end, more finished looking effects on your foreground and background, like if you're doing on an XR stage, putting things in front of people, that immersion into the set is really gonna change. And I think as soon as we're able to really allow the actors to see the visual effects without mm -hmm. it interfering with what they're wearing, it's gonna yeah. change everything. Like, yeah. like, I think that's gonna be just the coolest thing ever, but I think we're getting there. I think a lot of it has to do with, we can know how do we do this safely? How do mm -hmm. we not like irradiate our actors by surrounding them with all this equipment? You know, like at a certain point, you have to think that like, these are these are people standing around all of these different like you know wireless signals. Like, is this okay? You know, so yeah. Can, like, what's the safest way to do this? What's yeah. what's a cost effective way to do this? How do we, you know, go out into the jungle and do something similar? Like, mm -hmm. those are going to be the, the really amazing solutions that I'm seeing. Um, yeah. Like, not sacrificing precision for. Um, innovation I think is also important because yeah. a lot of new tools are coming out but they're not as precise as the original methods people go back to the original methods so yeah. they got to find a way to bridge that gap mm -hmm. yeah um uh so as a um you're kind of in uh, getting into your career becoming a leader have you decided uh your purpose in regards to blackness and black professionals in vfx I, I feel like um, the main thing that I've been trying to do is, um, well, I think what's, what's, what's different about our experience is that we don't often have all of the familial connections, all mm -hmm. of the, like the history of people within this industry, because a lot of people get the kind of experience and kind of opportunities that they get because, you know, a family member or somebody that they, that they know already is in these roles. I think that what we can start to do and what I've been trying to do is, you know, is, is recommend people and mm -hmm. give people opportunities that wouldn't have otherwise heard about them um, because of the role I'm in. I think that's the main thing we can do. Like the reason I'm meeting you is because of somebody I met in the fellowship that is also looking out for his fellow, um, his fellow black animators. And he, mm -hmm. it's like, because of because of that also that same experience and that same networking opportunity, I'm working with somebody else who's who's doing a a, a very inclusive educational initiative to get people that are underrepresented into mm -hmm. the industry and trained up. I think that's what we can do more of. Um, yeah. Like I um I was trying to give opportunities to people on our Avengers set, like teach like hey come over here let me let me teach you what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm not just going to give you instructions and. Um, there was a, one friend of mine that I know I was I was working with him. We were going over um, survey, then another mm -hmm. state because he learned that with me, he was able to do more LIDAR scanning. And now he's like a, a, a producer coordinator at a company doing this because he was able to get these experiences on stage. And I think it's important to to seek people out and, and bring them over and, and, and teach them, you know, yeah. like open people's eyes to the, to the possibilities and the experience and the opportunities that are actually there mm -hmm. and teach them that they are, they are capable to do these things. Cause I think a lot of the problem we have within the black community is the access to resources. Yeah. Um, like I talked about earlier, I know I was I'm aware that I had, um, 
I was in a privileged place to be able to have access to high-end equipment as a high schooler because yeah. of where I lived, mm -hmm. because I wasn't in um, other parts of Atlanta where the, 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 the funding wasn't there. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, even though I was able to have that, a lot of people that were just as talented didn't have that opportunity. So what do we do now? Like, how do yeah. we level that playing field? So that's the most that I'm empowered to do currently is to, is to give people opportunities or offer, offer training um, opportunities, like yeah. teach classes, like open these things online. Like you can, there's, um, there's websites where you can just sign up and people have some like webinars and they just teach things, you know, like to, to let people know that they have the option to, to really broaden their horizons is the most, the, is a, the most that a lot of us can do really. Yeah. Um, spread that education around a bit. Yeah, yeah it kind of sounds, it makes me think of um, Hidden Figures in Octavia Spencer's character where nobody knew how to use the, like the Fortran thing, I think. Mm -hmm. And she's like, let me give these women <laughs> like job yeah. security and teach them yeah. all how to use this computer. <laughs> yeah. It's so important. It's people that are going to excel at this and they just weren't given the chance to try mm -hmm. it. Like, yeah, we. I think we we have to do that for each other, you know. Yeah. And 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 obviously, it's not just. It's there. There are minorities in general that need these 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 experiences. Like part of of creating that strong community is bringing everybody up. And yeah. I think that it's important that we are able to use our experiences to empower other Black people to empower everybody around them as well. Yeah. You know, like spread that wealth around. Um, and I think that I think the important thing is just to. The more we do that, the less out of the ordinary we will seem in these roles. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's when we really have a breakthrough. You know, as beautiful as these talks are, as, as amazing as it is to be able to network, it shouldn't yeah. be an exceptional thing in the first place. Like, yeah. like ideally, eventually, this isn't like this isn't something that we have to even think about anymore. Like, like we need to all be able to just kind of continue moving forward together. And yeah. I think that's that should be everybody's goal in the big picture. You know? Right. Um, what do you um, hope that Black people in animation are doing in the current landscape that either you wish you could have done, you wish you could do, or that you actually are doing? I've seen, um, especially looking at some of the new artistic styles that are coming out, mm -hmm. that, that um, there's a new, I, I can't, the title of it escapes me. I just saw it the other day. Um, it looks like a a black female lead as like a martial artist and it oh it, um, master uh, yes Bradley. yeah yes yes and mm -hmm. it looks it looks like the artistic style of spider-man like that, mm -hmm. that that animation reminds me of that um mm -hmm. I, i'm i'm excited by these stories and being being able to be a part of these productions like mm -hmm. something that i've i i hope to be able to be a part of you know yeah. i think because I noticed that those crews, like or even I'm, you think of uh, Coco, for example, mm -hmm. had a very large Latino um, crew working on mm -hmm. that movie. I think it's really amazing to see these 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 beautiful, more more um, uh, all the, these stories that are that are focused on specific cultures, and you have people from those cultures working on these films and telling their own stories. Yeah. I think that's what's really amazing. Is is that we're, we're getting to the point where we have enough people in the industry to be able to amass these crews so that you do have a more authentic way to tell to tell the story. Um, mm -hmm. Something that I think I you know in the past they've critiqued, 
they've critiqued Disney on some of these things in the past. Like you, you know, didn't have the representation. You do the story; it's yeah. kind of missing the mark. So, I think that's something that we can do more of: is being able to tell our own story, being able to work together to 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 um, write characters and to affect the way that they're being portrayed in a more real way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's, I mean, even writing female characters has been a problem for a very long time. Like no one would ever say that. No one would ever <laughs> act that way. Like I think we need to work together to, to make sure that everyone's represented properly. And that's, and that's true of, um, that's true of minorities in all aspects. You talk about mm -hmm. gender minorities, you talk about, yeah. you know, ethnic minorities. Um, it's everything. Like we, I think it's important that we are able to, to feel empowered to tell our stories and not judge for doing so. Yeah. So, um, if someone was producing a documentary about you, what things would you want them to highlight about your life outside of your work in visual effects? Um, I would definitely say my family. Mm -hmm. They've I've, they've been very close with my parents and my sister my whole life, and that's definitely shaped who I am and what I what I care about. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. Um, to highlight for sure, just yeah. how much we are, how involved we are with each other. Um, I, uh, I don't know. That's that's a, that's a really that's a really good question. I, <laughs> I that's a curveball. I think um, mm -hmm. because I feel like so many of my of my hobbies and whatnot kind of relate back to what I do. Like, <laughs> like I I'm into uh, like I'm into the tech. I'm into mm -hmm. the video gaming. I I 3D print. I'm I'm reading the journal. Like that's just it's kind of my thing, you know. So it's kind yeah. of all like it's even my um I I'm I also like knit and crochet, which is just like analog 3D printing, you know. Like that's just <laughs> I, I not no. There's like I there's not a lot of like things that are really unique, I guess, or like kind of exceptional about what I do outside of work. It's really about to me. It's I focus a lot on my family. I focus a lot on mm. on on being a part of their lives and and I try to focus on, you know, keeping up on what I do to to be able to be the best I can at work. So it's that's kind of a thing. I guess that's the main thing. Yeah. Uh something funny about crocheting. So my mom my stepmom gave me a book on how to crochet when I was like nine years old. And so, okay, so this is like how, you know, there's 10 different types of personalities of people. So I'm one of those people where like the hard stuff is sometimes easy and then the easy stuff is sometimes hard. <laughs> so I remember reading this book and I was like making hats, purses, house shoes, like they weren't good. Like they, like, they were like two different size house shoes and like <laughs> stuff and like, I mean, but I didn't make, like, I started crocheting when I was nine. I didn't make a scarf till college. <laughs> like, right. like, a scarf is usually the first thing. Right. It's just flat. Like, yeah. It's so, like one of my friends in college was like, can you make me a scarf? I was like, sure. And then I was like, tw like 20 and making a scarf for the first time when I learned how to crochet when I was nine. That's so funny. <laughs> you just dove right in. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> go for these elaborate things that I didn't even I wasn't using patterns or anything I was just like freestyling so <laughs> but I'd, make a hand, I'd just be like zoop, zoop, zoop. okay put this in here right. that's great I love that it's, that is definitely not the easiest way to start <laughs> but that's I don't know that's just that's naturally great. how I approached it and I just think that's hilarious like oh um, 
another thing that shows that is I uh, there's this like website called Wyzant W-Y-Z-A-N-T. It's like a tutoring site. Mm. You take tests to be able to tutor people. And I like passed the geometry and algebra, but I failed the elementary math. <laughs> and then you can't never take the tests again. So like I can never <laughs> tutor in elementary math because I failed it. <laughs> Like, is she cheating? What is this? Like, how did she, how did she like, do that? <laughs> I went up to calculus in high school, but like, elementary math is just too hard. I think I was just going too fast. You just like, don't need it anymore. You've, you've bypassed it. You know, you've moved on to the more advanced thing. It's so that's just such an interesting thing to think about my personality. I'm like, yes, go for the hard things. Easy stuff, that is difficult. <laughs> Well, I mean, but I can imagine in the workplace it being so valuable because it's like you're going to pinpoint and solve yeah. the most important thing first and then everything, everybody else can handle the easy stuff. That's great. Yeah. I, I know some guy told me I had an engineering mind. I was like, well, I was going to become an electrical engineer before I found animation. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it's a positive in some ways. <laughs> For sure. I'd say so. Yeah. So where can people follow you or what, and what's your website? Um, I have jennifermcspadden.com. It's mostly where I have a reel and mm -hmm. some version of my current uh, resume. Um, I'm mostly on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram. I've got the gram. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's some random stuff there. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've got a Facebook from ages ago because I was, you know, I was in starting college when it was brand new like have you heard yeah. of the facebook you know so i have i have one but yeah, used to have the at the beginning right the face right back when you know myspace was the preferred one you know facebook yeah. was the new kid um so i have that but mostly linkedin um instagram and like i said my site is kind of just a, a quick link to my reel so there's not much on that right now i need to mm -hmm. i need to get back into that and screw that up a bit um but yeah, uh, just the full name on both of those things. Um, but I have links to that on, on the website too. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on my platform and sitting down with me. Black woman, black woman, black woman. <laughs> thank you so much. And to everyone, great. yeah, and to everyone out there, I want you to like so I know it's real. Comment and tell me how you feel. Subscribe to Soda Deal and sign up for post notifications to show your zeal. And I'll see you in the next video. Peace. Thank you.